Natalie, do you remember what you were watching 20 years ago? Oh, man. I want to say some bad things. Like, remember Dark Angel? <laughs> oh, my God. I love Dark no, Angel. No, it was... It was it had its moments for sure. And um, Andromeda. Um, oh my God. And Still love Andromeda. I feel like there was like a really bad like Dune miniseries. Maybe it was good. I don't know. I I was, it had its moments. It had, it had the middleman. It wearing, did. Wearing like little skimpy outfits. Yeah. So I, I feel like it wasn't, you know, it, it was weirdly not super memorable. Like I feel like turn of the century sci-fi TV was not, you know, it was more about like the movies, like the Matrix and stuff. Yeah, like, okay, so science fiction television of, like, 20 years ago feels like such a different time. Like, yeah. the only Star Trek we had was Enterprise, which was, or it kind of felt like it was already kind of limping yeah. towards its eventual, <laughs> you know, oblivion. Firefly was gone. Mm-hmm. Doctor Who was in a long, long, long hiatus. There had been a bunch of, like, space opera shows like Andromeda, Stargate, Babylon 5, Lex, and Farscape. But Lex! all of them were gone except for Stargate. I know, pouring one out for Lex. Mm-hmm. I feel like Lex deserves more love. That's for sure. And that was the moment 20 years ago when Battlestar Galactica burst onto the scene. Yes. And it was amazing. Like, I remember not just the fact that it was a great miniseries that was giving us a view of the future, past, present, whatever the heck it was, <laughs> that we just didn't see in space operas. You know, it was it was a very gritty, anti-Star Trek kind of vibe. And, you know, it really, it felt like now we have things like Andor and The Expanse, which feel like Mm -hmm. they're kind of following in that transformation, you know, but it was a real leap forward in terms of realism in space. And then the other thing I would say was that it was such a cultural phenomenon. It was one of those, Mm -hmm. it was one of the last water water cooler shows where like everyone was watching it. There was even like a Portlandia episode about watching it. You know, that's how much it had penetrated the culture. It was in the zeitgeist and it had a huge impact and it really felt like a breath of fresh air. Yeah. And, you know, so to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the BSG reboot, I just went and marathoned all four seasons, plus the mini stories that started everything. I just watched all of it, like, pretty much in one sitting. I haven't gone to the bathroom in, like, a week. Thank you for your sacrifice. That's, like, 80 hours of TV, right? It's a lot of TV, yeah. And I was surprised by how fresh and how relevant so much of it still feels. Wow. So do you feel like it holds up after 20 years? Well, mostly, yes and no. We'll get into it. But, okay, here's a warning. We're going to give you spoilers for the all of the BSG reboot, including the ending and everything else. So if you haven't somehow have not managed to see this show and you think you might, you know, stop listening now. Also, in next week in our mini episode, we're going to be talking about other science fiction space shows from the 1970s that could be rebooted in a similar fashion, like Space 1999, Blake 7, <laughs> and even some un- appreciated gems like Far Out Space Nuts mm. and Jason of Star Command. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So that reminds me, we have a Patreon, and that's because this is an entirely independent show. We have no sponsors. We have no corporate interests breathing down our neck telling us that we need We're to... not part of the colonial fleet. We're not part of the colonial fleet. No one told us you need to go talk about Battlestar Galactica because you're checks are being cut by the studio that made it. Um, We're just us. And that's because of you funding us through Patreon. So if you become a patron, not only are you making this podcast happen, which thank you so much, but you get audio extras with every episode. And those are pretty hefty. And plus, you get access to our Discord channel where we hang out all the time and talk about the episodes, but also everything. We talk about everything there. Um, and it's really wonderful. There's so many great folks in there who are really smart and opinionated in good ways. So um, anything mm-hmm. you can contribute um, would be great, whether it's five bucks or 20 bucks a month, um, you know, anything in between. So you can find us at patreon.com slash our opinions are correct. All right. Let's set condition one throughout the ship and talk BSG. So say we all. <laughs> Wow. 
Okay, so let's just like start at the beginning. Charlie Jane, what the heck is Battlestar Galactica? What is this show about and why is it so important? Yeah, so Battlestar Galactica is about a society of humans on another planet who created an enslaved, super intelligent robots named Cylons, only to have the Cylons, you know, predictably rise up and rebel. Now, it's decades later, and the war between humans and Cylons has long been over, but the Cylons show up again, and now they can look human, and they suddenly wipe out most of humanity, forcing the survivors to go on the run. And the survivors are searching for a legendary lost planet called Earth, which they hope can be their new home. So it's basically combining the classic robot uprising trope with space opera, which is delightful, Um, It's kind of like how the Terminator series, um, which, of course, was another thing that was quite popular at the turn of the century, combined robot uprisings with time travel. So it's kind of this mashup, like the robot uprising Mm -hmm. is on our minds, but it's like seeping into other tropes. Um, But the other thing is that this is a reboot of an older show. So tell us how, how what was the older show and is it is it different from the newer one? Yeah, so the 1978 version of Battlestar Galactica, it was, you know, very clearly trying to be Star Wars. Yeah. It, it was a little bit, it was much campier. And, you know, like, for example, it starts out with the near genocide of humanity, but then in the second episode, they go to a space casino for fun times right after all of their friends and family have died. It's like, you know, that's a good time to go to space I casino. Mean, drown your sorrows, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, so it was a little bit random, but then the new series, let's call it BSG 2.0, was produced by Ron Moore, who had already cut his teeth on things like Star Trek Deep Space Nine and really made a name for himself doing that because he really brought kind of complicated politics into Star Trek, but also a really nuanced treatment of religion and colonialism. Um, And these were things that really, I feel like, inhabited the new Battlestar as well. Yeah, I mean, there were so many brilliant writers who worked on Deep Space Nine, but the DNA of Deep Space Nine is definitely embedded within Battlestar Galactica, the the new version. And Moore had briefly joined the writing staff of Star Trek Voyager after the end of Deep Space Nine, and Mm. he had been very vocal in public about disliking the fact that Voyager seemed to not take very seriously the implications of of its own premise about a single starship that's stranded on the other side of the galaxy with a group of anti-Federation rebels Mm -hmm. among the crew. And, you know, it felt like Voyager didn't want to engage with those, the consequences of that seriously. So BSG is kind of feels like Ron Moore trying to tell a story that takes its premise much more seriously than Voyager did with its premise. Yeah, that's so interesting. I never thought about that because it it is dealing with that idea of like, what if you're stranded in space with like your worst political enemies? So what made the new Battlestar so groundbreaking? Yeah, so watching it again, a few things really jumped out at me. First of all, this is the first piece of like science fiction prestige TV. Like prestige TV was pretty new at the time. We had the West Wing, we had the Wire, and like other shows like that that were kind of pioneering that that format of like story narratives that are more serialized that aren't just like episodic and have and characters that are more morally gray and that are more complicated and there's a lot more nuance. Um, and it's sort of. Battlestar, you can still sort of see how it's a little bit kind of in this in-between state. Like, it still has, like, especially in the first season, there still are episodes where, like, everything's kind of wrapped up at the end of the episode. It was like, that was an adventure we went on. And, you know, also, it doesn't have the shorter seasons. Like, I was looking up the Wirehead, like, seasons that were between 10 and 13 episodes long, which is roughly what you'd see now with Prestige TV. Yeah. But Battlestar had 20 episode seasons, and they tried to kind of finesse that sometimes by having a break in the middle of the season where it would basically divide a 20 episode season into two 10 episode blocks. But, you know, there are definitely, there are definitely places where it feels like they're trying to, like, do the prestige TV model, but like sustain it for a much longer period. Yeah. And another thing that's really stands out is that, you know, this is, 
it's just it's such a well done show. Like every on so many levels, there's so many so many things that are well done that still kind of feel like a high watermark in terms of quality. Like the cast is all really great. Yeah. They can all hold their own in scenes with Edward James Olmos, which is kind of an acid test. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the world building is incredible. Like all the little details are just like so well thought out. The visual style, like the way that, you know, all the scenes in space are seem to be shot with handheld cameras with manual zoom, like zooming in, like whoop, that never gets old. You know, the way that the paper has the corners cut off and all the little military jargon yeah. is just so kind of lived in. Everything feels really lived in and kind of grounded and real. And, you know, there are very few shows even now that do just space stuff and like space battles but also the mechanics of traveling faster than light and the mechanics of dealing with stuff in space as well as BSG did. It's Everything is very well thought out. And it's it's just excellent military sci-fi in general. It really is. And when you were saying the stuff about the world building and like the paper with the edges cut off, which by the way, I had a, a swag notebook um, that I got at some point when we were uh, covering Battlestar for io9 that actually had the little edges cut off, which I really treasured. But it was making me think about um, fantasy world building, and that's like such a big thing now in fantasy shows where the the backdrops and the the built environments are so detailed. And that's part of the joy of it, you know, is like feeling mm -hmm. immersed in this other world. And I feel like we all we've always thought that, like Westeros. Yeah, right. Like Westeros or like in um, Wheel of Time. And mm -hmm. I think that's something that's always been a component of fantasy in film but in science fiction oftentimes there's this like idea of like oh we'll cut corners like nobody cares like the spaceship mm -hmm. looks kind of plastic nobody whatever you know um so i think that yeah. i think you're right that that really that was a part of that's what made it prestige but it's also what made people feel like they were immersed in that world yeah and actually it's interesting to think about that uh because star wars had the kind of like grungy like lived in feel in terms of like the look of the spaceships, but the world building in other ways in Star Wars is very slapdash and very like stuff. Just they make stuff up on the fly and yeah. it doesn't. It's radically inconsistent from minute to minute, which is part of the joy of Star Wars. But yeah, the third thing that uh, kind of jumps out at me is the is the handling of pol politics in, in BSG. It's still the gold standard in terms of like handling political topics with like nuance and sensitivity without there being necessarily good guys and bad guys. And mm -hmm. they keep kind of coming back to this question over the entire course of the series about how to maintain a civil society with, with a government that actually has legitimacy that comes from the people. When you're on the run and on the edge of survival and the relationship between the military and the government is a huge concern that's constantly shifting. And, you know, here's, there's this amazing quote from Commander Adama early in season one. You have the only armed, disciplined force available. Yeah, but I'm not going to be your policeman. There's a reason why you separate military and the police. One fights the enemy of the state. The other serves and protects the people. When the military becomes both, then the enemies of the state tend to become the people. And then you get to season three and Commander Adama is straight up letting the military serve as the police force. He's sending in Marines to break up strikes. He's threatening to murder civilians in one case. The shifting lines are super interesting. Yeah, it's really intense. And then Gaius Baltar, like the creepiest of technocrat creepazoids, becomes president. And it kind of feels more plausible now than it did back in the day, weirdly. Yeah, I feel like Baltar became president just saying that back in 2000, whenever, I was like, that could never happen. And now I'm like, oh, that would definitely, that could totally happen. Uh, even if we're not in a post-apocalyptic, you know, <laughs> yeah. fugi you know, refugee <laughs> scenario. And, you know, the show keeps grappling with the impossibility of preserving our constitution and our way of life until finally you get this moment in season three where there's two gut punches in a row. Mm -hmm. First, like Baltar, who we just mentioned, and, and Tyrrell, the kind of chief of the deck, kind of point out together that people's jobs are becoming hereditary and the fleet is kind of developing a caste system, which is a super oh, interesting idea yeah. that's like, you know, that there's no easy solution to because everybody's stuck on separate ships doing jobs that they were trained to do by their parents. Mm -hmm. And in the season finale, Leah Dama delivers this crackerjack speech where he says that the fleet is not a civilization anymore. It's a gang. 
because we're not a civilization anymore. We are a gang and we're on the run and we have to fight to survive. We have to break rules, we have to bend laws, we have to improvise. The thing about that moment is it's super earned. The show builds up to it for a long, long time and it reflects this unwillingness to sweep a lot of like the bad stuff that the characters have done under the rug in the way that almost any other science fiction show of the time would have done. Yeah. But the final thing that Battlestar does that feels really groundbreaking, and I'd love it if you could talk about this, Adelie, is it imagines a whole society of sentient AIs. Yeah, this is something that I think is really fascinating in science fiction generally around the turn of the 21st century is that we start to have, I guess you could call it like sympathy for the robot. And previously we've had, I mean, the, the story of the robot uprising, of course, goes all the way back to Karl Kopchak's play, R.U.R., in the 1920s. But it's not from the point of view of the robots. It's always from the point of view of the people who are being, who are basically heading off the, the rebellion, um, the humans. And suddenly you start getting authors like William Gibson, kind of in the 80s and 90s, showing us a little bit of the perspective of AI, although they're still kind of mysterious. You have, once you get to the 21st century, though, you get stuff like Martha Wells' Murderbot series, you get the movie Ex Machina, you get Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, Person of Interest, a ton of other stories, including like Westworld, for example, um, which is also a reboot of a 70s um, thing. It suddenly asks us to think about what are robot politics? You know, what What mm-hmm. would the ro- It's not, you know, instead of it just being like, oh, well, we oppressed the robots um, and now they hate us, which is kind of the simplistic view. Instead, That's it's the like, trope, yeah. Instead, it's like you get things like in the Sarah Connor Chronicles where it's like, actually, there's different factions of Terminators. Mm-hmm. Or you get something like Ted Chang's amazing novella, The Life Cycle of Software Objects, where it's about a person raising a basically an algorithm as their child and these algorithms mm-hmm. are are growing up and they're confronting what it means to like live in a virtual environment or to become embodied and it's like it's more about child psychology you know it's it's really no yes. longer about like robo psychology anymore it's it's and it and it also the thing that i think is really important about this new wave of stories which battlestar is part of is that they don't they try not to anthropomorphize the robots and the Cylons. Like, there are Mm -hmm. elements of their psychology, elements of their desires and politics that are just truly alien and that have developed out of their own types of bodies and their own types of reasoning. And in some ways, that's unknowable to the humans. The humans can't fully comprehend, like, what the Terminators want. But what we can comprehend is there's different ones who want different things. And I think that the Cylons become that in Battlestar so much because at at first we can't even tell the difference between the Cylons and the humans, but then we start to learn, actually, no, they have a really different point of view. They have a very different religious point of view, a very different civilization. And we're going to have to understand that. We can't just fight them. We're going to have to work with them. And that's, I just think, Mm -hmm. a huge shift. And again, Battlestar was one of the really, like, bleeding-edge shows that brought that idea into the mainstream. It had been bubbling up in literature before that, but I think afterward, you can't really have a robot uprising story anymore without having a robot main character. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and I love the way you put that. And it's interesting because when I rewatched Battlestar, like, recently, and you view it through the lens of having seen, having read Murderbot and having seen Westworld Mm -hmm. and, like, all this other stuff, it kind of falls short a little bit because it was laying the groundwork for a lot of that stuff. And, you know, the Cylons do at times feel a little bit too much like human characters who are just, like, you know, they they bicker and squabble in a way that feels very much like humans bickering and squabbling. The Cylon politics are often a little bit confusing. It doesn't entirely, like they make decisions that don't entirely make sense um, in a lot of cases that don't feel like they come out of anything grounded. The Cylons are at their best when they're super weird. Like when we meet the hybrids on their starships who are these kind of women who sit in fancy bathtubs and spout off strange poetry punctuated with math. (laughs) 
Um, the relationships between the humanoid Cylons and their their precursors, who are the big stompy robot mm-hmm, the centurions. centurions. Yeah. The politics of those two different types of Cylons are really interesting. But at times, I found myself being really frustrated by how how not alien the Cylons were and how much I wish that they were more alien. Yeah. And I mean, it's funny because they're framed as being this kind of, um, this kind of almost like a Soviet Union type threat in a weird way. Like every episode begins by saying the Cylons have a plan. And so as if there's like, if we used like Cylonology, we'd be able to figure it out. Oh my God. Yeah, and like the producers have been pretty vocal, I feel like, about saying that that line in the opening episode of every episode, they have a plan, was something that the Sci Fi Channel forced them to do. And they never oh. had, they never really knew what the Cylon's <laughs> plan was, or they never really wanted there to be a Cylon plan. Yeah. They kind of tried to retcon it. Um, but also, I mean, when I talk about the Cylons making inexplicable decisions, like towards the end of season two is where we're starting to try to get into the Cylons' psychology more. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started to get a little frustrated because, you know, at one point the Cylons decide, okay, we're going to try to live in peace with the humans and we're going to kind of leave the humans alone. And it's like, okay, great. That's, that seems like a really good choice, you guys. And then like three episodes later, the humans have settled on this planet called New Caprica, where they're just going to peacefully live on this planet and try to mind their own business. And the Cylons unexpectedly show up and invade and put the humans under occupation and kind of oppress them with like a, you know, a human police force, but also stompy robots and start (laughs) executing people. And it feels like this is basically the show trying to find a way to deal metaphorically with the then current occupation of Iraq and Afghanistan and show it from the the point of view of the people who are being occupied, which a lot of sci-fi TV was trying to do at the time, Mm -hmm. Uh, even down to like having a debate over suicide bombings and how to resist the occupation. But when you think about it from the silent perspective, and the show occasionally tries to, it doesn't really make any sense to be like, okay, we're going to just leave the humans alone and peacefully coexist with them, but now we're going to invade them and occupy them. Why? Yeah, it seems like a waste of time. It's interesting, too, that like, if their goal is to somehow, I guess, civilize the humans, like they're trying to be like friends of the humans or something, they don't ever set up like, Cylon residential schools or something to like re-educate the human population the way people did in real life here in the States, especially when, you know, the United States government wanted to like indoctrinate and control the occupied people, the indigenous people that were here, Mm -hmm. um, which clearly, I mean, that is also something that I think is being evoked um, by that season of, um, of the show. And so we don't see the Cylons doing these things that we might expect. But we do see them kind of just it's almost like what happened was the show wanted to get political, but it wanted to comment on so many different political situations that it became a little bit unstable. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And it feels like, you know, it feels like the show is sort of gesturing at some like very relevant political stuff from the early 2000s, but doesn't quite know what to say about it. And, you know, I was just struck by a number of occasions in the, watching the show where the Cylons seem to make decisions that move the plot forward, but that don't come out. Like, the humans generally make decisions that come out of like a deep understanding of the humans' political and psychological issues. Mm-hmm. And the Cylons sometimes just make decisions that are just this is what we need to do to move the, the plot forward. Yeah. Of, because they're the antagonist and the show never quite manages to just, you know, let them be m- not just the antagonist, but like have, you know, their own agenda. That's, that's, that's clear cut. Yeah. Like one of the, um, I think, missed opportunities in the show was um, developing the fact that the Cylons are monotheists and all the humans mm-hmm. are polytheists, which... I always thought it was an incredibly smart, interesting detail. You I rarely, yeah. rarely see a story that deals with um, robot spirituality. I think one um, great exception to that rule is Ken McLeod's novel, The Night Sessions, which is also about robots developing a kind of rebel Christianity. Um, it's ah. such, highly recommend that novel if you can track it down, The Night Sessions by Ken McLeod. But what I will say is that, um, Yeah. So like we get these little glimpses of the Cylon culture and we know that they have this whole other way of seeing the world. But like, yeah, I wish there'd been a moment where they were like, well, because we're monotheists, that's why we have to occupy 
the humans because we need to teach them about like God, you know, like we we can't leave them alone on New Caprica unsaved, but we never really fully get there. Yeah, I wanted to see the silence proselytizing, which we do see Baltar doing later a in the show. Bit, yeah. In a weird way. Yeah. Okay. So that seems like a good place to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about God. We're also, first before that, going to talk a little bit about gender in BSG. Make it so. So speaking of the Cylons, it feels like the Cylons are where a lot of the show's kind of anxieties around gender and sexuality are located. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the female Cylons all tend to be seducers and manipulators in various ways, while the male Cylons are all kind of walking consent violations. (laughs) And it's just sort of weird. Like, they're very kind of edgelordy. And the human characters, by and large, have some nuance in their gender and sexuality. I mean, you get some outliers, but the Cylons kind of start out embodying some pretty heinous stereotypes. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like um, Battlestar can't quite think its way out of the fembot. You know, like if we're gonna have, yeah, if we're gonna have something, oh my god, yeah, that's not a centurion. Like it's either like it's either a fembot or a centurion, and of course, right, plenty of the male Cylons are not centurions, but. They still, but like, they're you, like kind of pickup artists. I don't know. Yeah, there's some sometimes, and they're also just very aggressive, domineering. You know, militarized, uh, and I don't think any of them use fembodiness. Like I, I think you're right that it's very it's very gendered, but like especially the the female ones, they're all fembots pretty much. Yeah, I found the first season kind of hard to watch at times because you know. Six, the silent played by Trisha Helfer, really plays into the femme fatale trope. Like, she seduces Baltar to, like, get the information that they need to attack the humans. And then she turns into kind of a sexy ghost mm-hmm. who, like, follows Baltar around, <laughs> giving him hand jobs while he's trying to talk to people. Head six. Um, and then... <laughs> Yeah, and meanwhile, Grace Park is playing two different versions of the same Cylon, and both versions seem kind of manipulative. Mm -hmm. Like, in season one, she's Boomer, who is a brainwashed double agent who doesn't know that she's a Cylon, but that kind of manifests as her kind of being out of control and emotionally manipulative and constantly getting Chief Turrell to cover for her when she has memory lapses and clearly has been up to some shenanigans. And she kind of sucks Chief Turrell into complicity with her, um, making him kind of a victim of her, you know, trick tricksterness or whatever, mm-hmm. her trickiness. Yeah. And uh, meanwhile, there's another version of that same Cylon model on Earth who eventually becomes na- known as Athena and she kind of hooks up with with Carl Agathon, a.k.a. Hilo, mm-hmm. and she's trying to trick him into falling in love with her. And there's all these scenes where she's kind of hanging out with Hilo and then he falls asleep and she sneaks off to go to talk to the other Cylons. And they're all like, did he say he loves you yet? And she's like, no, not yet. I'm working on it. And it's like this weird thing of like, she's trying to kind of catfish him into falling in love with her so that because they have this theory that if he falls in love with her, they can make a baby, which eventually does happen. And the show later in later seasons wants us to really believe that the love between Hilo and Athena is real. But we saw like basically like a dozen episodes of her manipulating him to fall in love with her. So it's kind of hard to not remember that Mm -hmm. if you've watched the whole show in one go. And meanwhile, Starbuck is getting imprisoned and gaslit by two different male Cylons. There's the Rick Worthy Cylon, who I don't think ever gets a name, who's like the creepy doctor guy. Mm -hmm. And then there's Leobin, played by Callum Keith Rennie, and they just, all they want to do is lock Starbuck up and either harvest her ovaries or trick her into becoming a mom. And Callum Keith Rennie's character, Leobin, we're going to talk about him a little bit more later in the episode, but he becomes super obsessed with Starbuck and becomes kind of a sadomasochistic spiritual guide to her, which is as weird as it sounds. And in the final season, there's this political operative named Tori Foster, who we thought was just a human, but she, she finds out that she's a Cylon and she immediately turns into a femme fatale. Like there's such like a switch that's flipped. She's suddenly like seducing Baltar and like doing stuff like creepily flirting with Tyrrell in front of Tyrrell's wife to like try to mess with their marriage. It's like just generally like all the weirdest femme fatale stereotypes. Suddenly, the moment she knows she's a Cylon. Yeah, it's really insane. Like it's and I 
like you said, it's the Cylons are either femme fatales or they're like obsessed with getting pregnant. Mm-hmm. So it's like they are, yeah, which is a big trope in general in in an AI story. Yeah, it really it is. It goes beyond this uh, show, but it's like again, it's like either they're like they want to be the fembot or the mommy bot. But then you have the human character, President Roslyn, who's kind of a great character when when she's not being like a weirdo messiah, which to be fair, like the male characters also have the weirdo messiah thing. So, you know, she's I think she's kind of like a real exception to this. Yeah. And President Roslyn is honestly my favorite character in the entire series. Like when I rewatched mm-hmm. it, I was really struck by how great she is. And yeah, she does have those moments of like, I'm you know, I'm tripping on cancer medications and like having visions that are going to lead us to Earth, which, you know, there are periods where the show really leans into that. And she becomes like one of the characters who is kind of speaking for, she's kind of a spiritual leader and it mm-hmm. gets a little bit creepy and culty at times, but she's generally the hero of the series. And I think that this, the show definitely kind of sees her that way. She's the one who basically, and Adama very much later in the show admits this, that she kind of saves everybody because there's this moment in the miniseries where Adama's like, okay, the Galactica, the Battlestar is going to abandon all of the human survivors and go off and fight the Cylons in basically a suicide mission. And uh, Rosalind has to kind of convince him that the war is over and they lost and all they can do is survive now and try to find a new place to live. And she finally talks him out of this futile mission. And she's the reason why anybody survives in the show. Right. She's this really believable leader who has nerves of steel, even when she's like dying of cancer. And she's, you know, yeah, she acts like a school teacher, but the show does not let that invalidate her authority at all. And, you know, considering that all the romantic relationships in BSG pretty much are depressing or dysfunctional or doomed or terrible or just kind of like messed up. Like, I guess the relationship between the Saul and Ellen Ty is just this kind of an- ongoing dysfunctional relationship. Yeah. But some of the other relationships are just like doomed from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's only one romance in BSG that's actually beautiful and heartfelt and just like feels organic and just like really just a beautiful love story. And that is the romance between Adama and Rosalind who start out as enemies and become like really tender towards each other. And it's one of the, it's become one of my favorite romances of all time. I cried a lot at the end. Um, I just want to come back really fast to the femme fatale thing because I feel like one of the things that struck me watching the whole show in the row is like, you see all this stuff where like six in particular is seducing and manipulating and being a femme fatale. And then you get to this really horrifying thing halfway through season two where they meet the Battlestar Pegasus and there's a six on board who has been systematically gang-raped by the crew of the Pegasus. Mm -hmm. And it feels like this is kind of the ultimate expression of the, like, the show's kind of, like, obsession with, like, consent violations and using sexuality as like a means of control or as a weapon, it kind of culminates in this terrible gang rape sequence, which luckily we don't see most of, but it really feels like there's some weird unexamined stuff going on there that I still am kind of chewing over. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, rape is a big part of war and nearly every total war has, um, you know, a ton of victims of rape. And so I think, I'm sure that's part of their effort, like to, to go into kind of intentionality. (laughs) Um, I think that the, that the writers really wanted that to be realism, you know? I mean, it's like Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones also was like, here's super rapey. Yeah. But I think that part of the realism or whatever, and it's like, eh, there's, there's a valid debate about whether you actually need that. I, I agree. And I think it, it does go back to being unable to imagine female robots that aren't at some level fembots. Um, and remember, a fembot is both eroticized, but also is a killing machine, just like an ex machina. And the thing that I, t- to go back to Rosalind for a moment, the thing that's so interesting about her character is that she doesn't represent anything to do with sexuality. She represents the contradictions and conflicts of democracy. And she's really yes. the place in the show where we think through what is civil society? What is the relationship mm-hmm. between the government and the military? How do we have an mm-hmm. election? How do we know that this is fair? Um, where? How do we separate religion from government? 
Um, and so she gets to have that really rich position as a character that the other women are just not allowed to have. Maybe Starbuck does a little bit. Yeah, and like one more thing about the romantic relationships in the show is that like, see, I found season three kind of frustrating in its own way because that's the season where at the end of season two, there's like a, a one year time jump. And when we come back at the end of that time jump, a bunch of characters have gotten married. Mm-hmm. And we've, we don't get to see the honeymoon. We don't get to see them falling in love for the most part. We just get to see their marriages falling apart. And it's actually really painful to watch, especially without having gotten to see the good part. And it's actually, it's, it's weird. It's kind of dystopian. And actually, that leads me to one of the characters that I really became obsessed with this time around, which is Anastasia Duala. Mm, yeah. So she's one of the most prominent black characters on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a black woman. And, you know, there's the other black characters that I that come to mind immediately. And please let me know if I'm forgetting any listeners. But there's the evil Cylon played by Rick Worthy. Right. And then there's also a bunch of black characters who are like from the planet Geminon, where everybody is hyper religious and they all become kind of part of Laura Roslin's cult. Like, yeah, they're, they're like Laura the Roslin's black cult followers. <laughs> I mean, there's one or two black characters who actually become prominent, but they're there to kind of prop yeah. up Laura Roslin's spiritual legitimacy. But Duala is actually a great character in the first two seasons. She gets a lot of great moments. And in season two, she gets this amazing scene, which is like probably my favorite scene in the entire show, where she tells Adama that he needs to reunite the fleet. You made a promise to all of us to find Earth. Find us a home together. It doesn't matter what the president did or even what Lee did. Because every day that we remain apart is a day that you've broken your promise. People aboard those ships made their own decision. It was their decision, not mine. Thank you, Petty Officer. You may leave now. You asked to talk to me, sir. Maybe because you think that I don't have anything to say. But I do. It's time to heal the wounds, Commander. People have been divided. I said that's enough. Children are separated from their parents. Such a powerful scene. And Candace McClure absolutely sells it. And she's mm-hmm. the last person that Adama expects to stand up to her. So it hits twice as hard coming from her. And she kind of is the moral compass of the show in season two to some extent. And then get to season three. She's just Leah Adama's wife. And she's kind of relegated to giving him moral support and then later getting upset with him for being a shitty husband. And then halfway through season four, she kills herself kind of out of nowhere. And it just, it feels honestly disappointing that this character who had so much great material in season two is kind of cast aside and turned into a love interest. Yeah, it's it's not good. And you know, the show does such a fantastic job. I just want to shout out one other character who's like super nuanced and complicated and flawed, who also happens to be a person of color, Felix Gaeta, who is this like nuanced gay character who makes really tough choices and ultimately turns against his comrades for really legitimate reasons. And actually, one character who I found too cartoony the first time around when I watched the show before... Uh Gaius Baltar, he works a lot better for me this time because he, he's huh. kind of this holy fool who is being stalked, like we said, by a horny angel. And he keeps just like blundering into situations where he's way out of his depth, but people take him seriously for some reason. Well, and he's like a famous scientist of, or something. Or something. Mm-hmm. And he's he's kind of the comic relief of the show, but he also kind of gets some of the most poignant moments. It's actually like, I was like, okay. Yeah, Baltar, I I actually, I feel like Baltar does a lot of really interesting work on the show. Hmm. You know, we haven't even talked about Starbuck yet. Yeah, and like, that's... So many feelings. My feelings about Starbuck are, yeah, so many feelings. Like, my feelings about Starbuck are kind of inextricable from my feelings about the show's supernatural elements, which I was kind of saving for last, because in the final season, Starbuck kind of becomes an angel. You know, I really liked the cigar-chomping fisticuffs version of Starbuck, um, and I was... I think that we all liked that version. Yeah, so that, yeah, it was a bit disappointing. Yeah, I feel like 
Starbuck is an example of a show of a character who's like a recognizable type. She's like the badass pilot who screws around, drinks hard, gambles, and just like is out for a good time, but is kind of secretly super damaged. And the show does a lot of interesting stuff with that, but also kind of wants to take her in this other direction. And Ah, Starbuck becoming an angel is sort of emblematic of something that the the main thing that bothered me about this show. And Mm -hmm. I'm just going to come out and say it. Okay. After watching all of BSG in one go, my overarching takeaway is that Battlestar Galactica is one of the best science fiction shows ever made. It's in the top 10. It's, It's the gold standard. Agree. But it's also kind of a mediocre fantasy show. Hmm. And like, you know, okay. the fantasy elements are threaded through the show from the first season onward. There's like prophecies, magical dreams, mm-hmm. miracles, mm-hmm. angels, and like everything kind of keeps coming back to this weird vision of an opera house and this special child that we start seeing in season one. Mm-hmm. And like... Battlestar Galactica is so careful with its science fiction elements. It's so, like, thoughtful about how it handles robots and starships and space battles and, like, all that stuff that it it feels even more glaring that the fantasy stuff is just always a little bit hand-wavy. And, like, I'm a huge believer in the idea that supernatural elements don't always need to be explained and you can have magic that's just kind of vibes, that's just, like, dreamlike or numinous. I love, I love a trippy magical story where it's just, like, woo, some stuff happened. But I feel like the problem that I have with BSG is that it puts so much weight on these fantasy elements and they kind of are so central to the plot after a while. And like every single character has mystical experiences after a while. And like God is kind of heavy handedly controlling things from behind the scenes. And at some point, you kind of want some kind of explanation, the same way that on Deep Space Nine, the prophets would show up and like talk to Cisco. Like I kind of craved that. And the, the head six and head Baltar weren't doing it for me. So the show just doesn't want to ever explain its fantasy elements in any meaningful way. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, it makes me think a little bit of like 2001, where you also Mm -hmm. have this like very meticulously realistic representation of being in space and like corporate sponsorship of spaceships. And then Mm -hmm. suddenly like there's giant baby glowing babies and like kind of 1960s woo-woo, like, LSD stuff. Um, And I think that it's, it's, you know, to be fair, I think that these are narratives that are kind of invoking Clark's third law, which is, like, Mm -hmm. sufficiently... Oh, yeah, for sure. Which we have critiqued in a previous episode, but the idea that, like, anything that's truly technologically advanced will feel like magic. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like probably BSG wants that to be the case, but also wants to like have its like fantasy cake as well. <laughs> like, yeah. And there really is this long tradition in space opera of like meeting God or whatever. Sure. Like Star Trek does it all the time. But I feel like where I have a problem is when it starts to get so plot heavy, when it gets to be so much like, you know, in Lord of the Rings, you know what the ring is, you know who Sauron is, you know, mm-hmm. there's stuff that like when it's like, central to the plot and when there's like objectives and quests and things that have to be done at a certain point you just have to like put your cards on the table i think Mm -hmm. and bsd isn't content to just have like the occasional trippy experience but then we're back to the plot it's like the trippy experiences are the plot after a while and like the opera house doesn't entirely pay off for me it's just it feels like a lot of stuff is kind of like vibes but they want it to be more than vibes and so okay the character starbuck is where a lot of my issues really come together yeah we talked before about leobin the kind of pickup artist cylon <laughs> who's played by callum keith rennie and he's kind of a stalker he's creepy like obsessed a domestic with abuser he is the domestic abuser. He locks her up. He gaslights her. He gives her a fake daughter and like Ugh. tries to make her fall in love with him. The Silence are really obsessed with making humans fall in love with them. It's really weird. Mm-hmm. And like, but the show doesn't just want Leoben to be this creepy dude who's obsessed with Starbuck and is kind of a shitty PUA. The the show wants him to be her spiritual guide and he can kind of see stuff about Starbuck that is like important. And like it comes to a head at the end of season three where a mystical oracle tells Starbuck that Leoben knows her better than she knows herself. And this is feels like the show speaking to the viewer and saying Leoben is right. And Leoben understands things that Starbuck needs to know. Yeah. And it's like what the hell, guys? Really? And then following on from like follow this 
notion that Leoben is her spiritual guide, she basically kills herself. And in this really weirdly pointless, horrible episode where mm-hmm. she, her death could have been averted. Anyway, it's it, it's actually really upsetting. Like she at one point is like, I'm not going to fly anymore. And uh, Leah Dama is like, no, nah, I keep flying. It's all good. And then she dies. And it's like, why, why did she have to die? And then she comes back from the dead and she's even more kind of so fucked up and miserable when she comes back from the dead. Yeah, I I just, I mean, as a kind of point of order, <laughs> I just don't like a narrative where, like, two major female characters have to kill themselves. Like, just not into it, you know? <sighs> don't like yeah, it. me neither. Don't like it me at all. Me neither, I don't like it. It's not, it's not my favorite. And, like, yeah, so, and... I watching the final season, there's a lot that I love about the final season. Like I actually thought it feels of a piece with the rest of BSG. It actually holds up really well overall, but I got so sick of seeing Starbuck being tortured. Mm-hmm. And like she's just like, you know, she's having these weird, like she has this weird music that she can hear that's leading her to Earth, and then Earth turns out to be a burned out cinder. And she's just if she's an angel, she's a really fucked up, tortured angel who's really unhappy and miserable and like just like getting drunk Toxic and, like, angel. torturing herself and, <laughs> and like, painting weird paintings and, and, like, you know, and she keeps screaming. We're going the wrong way! And, you know, you want all of that suffering that Starbuck goes to to have a huge payoff. And then, basically, in the final episode, she's, like, after insisting that she's not an angel, like she says, even a couple episodes earlier, I know for sure that I'm not an angel. Mm-hmm. She finally kind of accepts that she's an angel, and that's when she leads everybody to the new homeworld that's going to be the new earth but it doesn't it doesn't feel like all of the misery we saw her go through is is really justified when it's just like all she does is put some numbers into the navigation thing that she got from some sheet music and then boom we're at the new earth i'm just saying that doesn't seem like a very polytheistic way to be an angel that feels more monotheistic it feels it's giving old testament it's giving job. It's like, <laughs> no, this is, this is like, I mean, and maybe that's the point. Um, but, you know, the other thing that's, that kind of happens at, in that last episode, basically, really follows on from what you were saying about how this is kind of a mediocre fantasy show, um, which I thought was such an interesting point, which is that Basically, the final episode is all about like, yep, it's we're just in fantasy land now. There's no more technology. We're just like on this planet and it's like the Paleolithic or whatever, or maybe even before the Paleolithic. I don't know. It's like um, unclear. And um, Mm -hmm. it's It's like 150,000 years ago. We're told. okay, so it's the Paleolithic Um, and all technology is going to be gone. We're going to just that's what's going to happen. We're just going into the mythic era. It's going to be the paleo diet forever. Um, Yeah, and they kind of talk about how this will give us a chance to start over and a clean slate. And like, it does feel very much like the show has just finally embraced that it is a fantasy show and that we're giving up our technology. And like, it's interesting because one thing that I really thought watching the the final episodes is that the show's ultimate villain is Brother Cavill, who's one of the creepy dude Cylons who has consent and boundary issues. (laughs) And daddy issues and mommy issues. You know, and... Brother Cavill is the villain of the show because he's the only character by the end who still thinks he's in a science fiction show. He's a very determined rationalist. Interesting. He rejects religion. He rejects superstition. He rejects, you know, even the Cylon religion. Mm -hmm. And that's why he has to be done away with because he's he's the one person still standing in the way of the idea that we're all just like going to embrace the supernatural and let go of kind of any... Yeah, we're going to let go of rationality. We're going to dive back into the past um, and like mm-hmm. die to a time before anything that could be described as civilization, basically. That's so funny. Basically. It really is true. It's like he's the atheist of the show, mm-hmm. even though. And he's. Yeah. He's the science guy, kind of. Yeah. Other than Baltar, because like Baltar starts as a science guy, no, but, but very Baltar quickly becomes fourth yeah, yeah, yeah. Season. No, I agree. He becomes like this religious figure, and like he immediately is having like visions. Like he's very quickly goes from science guy to like religion guy, but not Cavill. he's basically Jesus by the final season. It's kind of amazing. I I actually love Baltar's arc in that show, <laughs> and like you know, my final thought is. Like, I kept thinking, like, the show borrows a bunch of 
story beats from the original Battlestar Galactica, like the Battlestar Pegasus showing up and a bunch of other stuff. Oh, interesting. And I kept wondering, like, what if they had just gone ahead and done what the original Battlestar did, which was have a sequel show called Galactica 1980? And I'm not saying that they should have arrived on Earth in the year 1980, because that would have been kind of weird. But what if the Galactica and all the other human fleet show up on Earth and it's 2008 and like mm-hmm. human, like Earth politics, like our politics are being intertwined with the politics that the show has had to deal with all along. And I was like, I don't know, that would have been interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's what the show wanted to back away from. Like you said, that mm-hmm. it wanted, it, it wanted to, to retreat that. from realism, retreat from those politics that touch too close to our that that kind of approach too closely to our own and go completely into this like old testament you know mindset uh, idyllic pastoral yeah. it's like very pastoral i mean it's and you yeah. know you know and like it is still arguably the most successful science fiction reboot on television oh yeah after bsg we got reboots of flash gordon knight rider the bionic woman and v all of which felt like they were trying to recapture the the magic of BSG. Yeah. I was using magic in the sense of storytelling now. But none of them had the careful character work, the attention to detail, and just like the kind of thoughtfulness of BSG. And that's why, despite all my complaints, it is still one of the best science fiction shows of all time. And the way that it can pivot between radically different tones, like grounded political drama, to campy silliness, to nail-biting action, this show should not work as well as it does. And it's really a tribute to the quality of the writing mm-hmm. as well as the acting mm-hmm. that it, it is so successful. It's it's truly an amazing achievement. Yeah. Um, I just want to leave on that note. Okay. So thank you so much for listening. And, uh, you know, if you just stumbled upon us, uh, where you can find us wherever podcasts are found, please leave a review. It really helps. Uh, you can find us on Mastodon at Wandering Shop. Uh, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Our Opinions Are Correct. We're on Instagram as Our Opinions. And, okay, so thanks so much to our incredible producer, Veronica Simonetti. Yeah! And also thanks for the music to the wondrous Chris Palmer and Katya Lopez Nichols. And, uh, you know, if you're a patron, we'll be seeing you in Discord and we'll have a mini episode next week. Everybody else will be back in two weeks. Bye! Bye! Bye.